All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing. But I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Afrotech 2017, San Francisco, California. Jewel Burke Solomon is on the main stage speaking with Angela Benton, who is today founder and CEO at Streamlytics, about her company, Partpick, which had just been acquired by Amazon. Angela asks a question that's critical and may not be obvious to most. Getting acquired is a lot about the team you've built, not just the technology. The company who's buying you wants the talent you've attracted. That's a core part of the value they want to purchase. So to become a valuable company, how do you attract the kind of talent that can first build something great and second, become a marketable asset in and of itself? The first step was kind of leveling up my understanding of what I would need. So it's hard to recruit people if you don't even know what you need. Um, so I needed to figure out, okay, who are the people that are building this type of technology? What is their skill set? What languages do they know? Um, and once I figured that out, then I went to those meetups and went to those events so I could meet those people. And a lot of it had to do with being able to craft a story that was interesting to them. So I was really trying to refine the folks that I was looking for. And then when I got in front of them, being able to tell them a story about you know, just the same thing I told you about. My grandfather had this problem. I'm an expert in this industry. I mean, expert. I worked at the company for a year at that point, but, you know, expert-ish. And I wanted them to realize that I'm, I'm really serious about this. I'm trying to build a, a great company, great technology, and I want you on board. And it worked, surprisingly. I mean, at this time, you're talking about I was 23, 24 years old. So wow. a lot of what I did was... I just didn't know any better, and I was just kind of fearless in a sense. Naivete is the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I really was just like, this is a, a great idea. I know it's going to work because I can see it every single day in my, in my job. You know, I think the story 
was compelling to folks and they were interested, even so much so that one of the first kind of breaks I got was I competed at TechCrunch Disrupt. And people saw that video and reached out to me and were like, hey, I'm really interested in this problem that you're trying to solve. I don't think you've raised any money yet, but I, I just want to work with you. And so I was able to get free labor that way because people were just interested in the problem and hadn't seen a solution. It was folks who were kind of tinkerers who were like, I need this, so I want to help you build it because I need it. I'm Will Lucas, Mrs. Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Low Tony is the founding and managing partner at Plexo Capital, which is an institutional investment firm he incubated and spun out of GV, Google Ventures. VCs need to go out to funds, just like startups do, to raise the capital they can deploy to other startups. And I don't think we talk about that enough. They do the same thing. They pitch, they execute on ideas or a thesis, if I may. When raising a fund, what is similar about the function of being a VC and operating a startup? At Afrotech World 2021, I asked Low Tony, the best person on the planet, to provide a worthy answer. There are a lot of similarities. That's a good observation. We think about it all the time, both in terms of how we operate and communicate the message of Plexo Capital, but also what we look for in other early stage firms and general partnerships that we want to invest into. So if I were to think about my job as an investor into companies, then there are certain things that we would look for. We'd look for the market size. We'd look for the problem being solved. We'd take a look at the, the solution and how it fits within the, the overall competitive landscape. And most importantly, especially at the early stage, we'd look at the team as well. And then in combination of all those things, kind of one of the things that should surface is what is it that makes this company really unique? What's their competitive advantage? And I think that applies to the world of investing as a limited partner. When we look at GPs that we're interested in backing, GPs are the general partners that lead venture firms. If we're looking at a new fund that we'd like to consider, we think about the opportunity that it's going after. Is it thesis driven? And is it taking a certain approach around, let's say, enterprise software and the opportunities within that market? Or is it taking a geographic approach? Kind of what's the positioning of the firm in terms of how it's going to deploy the capital? And then we look at the GPs. What's their track record? What's their experience? What do the entrepreneurs have to say about working with them? What do other GPs have to say about working with them? What do their LPs have to say? And we take all of that and then we think about, okay, what's the unique advantage that these GPs will have that will allow them to win the best deals? So there are a lot of similarities between investing as a general partner into an entrepreneur as there are as investing as a limited partner into general partnerships. What, what is wildly different versus investing directly into a company versus investing into a fund? Yeah, here, here's the thing that I think is wildly different. When investing into a company, the, the risk is isolated into to kind of one point of fault, right? There is the, the company itself, the, the entrepreneur, the team, the market they're going after. But basically, the risk is isolated into that one investment. Investing as a limited partner, it's a little bit different because what I'm doing is as a limited partner, I'm basically investing into the bank account of a general partner and they've got a blank checkbook. 
And so I really don't know the investments that they're going to go and make, right? They'll tell me a story. I can look at their track record. I can look at past investments they've made. But at the end of the day, the, the risk is a little broader. So, you know, it definitely takes a little bit longer in the diligence process, investing as a limited partner, as opposed to investing as a, as a general partner. So you're specifically focused on helping minorities get into this space. And as a byproduct of that, we're like, we're not all coming from Silicon Valley or Stanford, you know, and, and, and in many cases, you know, you have to do more to cultivate that crop of VCs. And if, if I understand correctly, so is there a strong pipeline of black and black female VCs to, to be able to come to low and say, hey, we got the right stuff? Absolutely. We track about 13 to 1400 firms globally. And we've had a touch point with close to 500 of those folks. And there's a, a strong mix of black general partners within that set. They have the capabilities, the qualifications. It's really off, often just a matter of getting the opportunity, kind of getting that first entity or person to believe in them, to back them, to go out and invest. What we've learned is that it's important also to have a little bit of a different approach in terms of evaluating a general partner, especially when it comes to track record. So I think we're fairly flexible. Obviously, if someone is on a fund two or fund three, we can look at fund one or fund two performance. If someone is coming out of a shop that allows attribution, uh, they're leaving a larger firm to go start their own venture firm, hang their own shingle, we can look at their track record from that firm if the prior firm allows attribution, or we can help the GP piece together what their track record was at that firm and what their role was in the deals. Did they help to source the deal, due diligence? Did they lead the investment? Did they take the board seat? We'll even look at prolific angel track records or folks that spin up SPVs. You know, I think all of those components allow us to be a little more flexible when it comes to track record. Again, going back to your opening comment and observation, at the end of the day, this is a people business. And so we spend a lot of time getting to know the people and understanding not only their acuity of being able to identify high performing venture scale startups, but then also how they're how those GPs are ultimately going to work with entrepreneurs and, you know, what's the value that they provide after the check and what's their reputation going to be built upon. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses. Helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. 
Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Yeah, I love that you talked about value. I was I was talking to Ida Ekpaldum from Gingerbread Capital about this, and um, and we were talking about how it, you know it's hard enough for Black women to see inroads into entrepreneurial and or career success, getting better in some ways, but it's still difficult. And it's another thing to tell them that they can be the investors, you know, into a lot of the companies that they that they come into contact with. You, when you talk about value, you know, I, I, I love talking to VCs about, you know, like what is the unique value that, you know, your thing, like what's your unique opportunity? What's, what are you uniquely situated to do? What unique value do women bring, black women particularly, bring to investing? What we look for in general partnerships and general partners is some unique access to be able to, to source amazing deal flow. And the insight that we had at GV, formerly Google Ventures, where Plexo Capital was really born, was that women and people of color, in fact, we started with black GPs. We did five commitments at GV into uh, seed stage venture funds led by black GPs. And the insight was kind of this indirect path into venture allows for access to some unique networks to get differentiated deal flow. But there's another piece as well. I think it's the lens that a, a black GP or a woman or a person of color can use to evaluate market opportunities, especially at the early stage before there's a lot of data. So it takes some familiarity with markets. And then also having that lens <clears throat> be able to evaluate an entrepreneur differently because not every entrepreneur that's successful has to look like a Mark Zuckerberg. And so I think what, what black women in particular bring, again, kind of going back to these networks, you know, we always have to, whether it's, you know, black women or black men, we have to, to work, you know, twice as hard to get half as far and it's going to take us twice as long. And, and I would say that 
you know, if we think realistically about the challenges that, that black people have, but in particular black women, I mean, they're probably in many cases working three times as hard. And so I think without question, there, there's the ability to kind of have that drive. And I think we've seen that anecdotally. But then I think also going back to that lens, I think the ability to kind of have the recognition around a certain set of problems that might be unique to their experiences and being able to see that there are venture scale opportunities in those at the early stages, I think is really an advantage for black women. Now, some of the challenges are, <clears throat> It's often a little more difficult for them to be able to to raise the the capital to go out and start to make those investments. But I would say, or often some of the target markets they might look at, people might not believe there are venture scale opportunities within those. And I think what we are starting to see, at least, is a, a group of you know millennial and Gen Z black females that are out doing some some great things. You know, Maya and Ingressive Capital or Monique at Cake Ventures, um, I mean, Mariah, you know, and th the work that she's doing, there's a lot of success points that we will have to monitor and observe looking forward. And they're out there doing some great things. So, you know, tip of the hat and applaud them. And we want to back as many of them as possible. There's different levels of involvement that a VC, you know, may have when they're investing seed capital directly into a startup. Some are you know, just board, they just sit on the board and they come to the meeting, they show up after they wrote the check. Some are very involved, you know, in the operations of, of the organization. When you're investing in the funds, what would be the norm, I guess I should say, on your involvement into that fund that you invested in? For us at Plexo Capital, when we think about making an LP commitment, we want to be a value add limited partner. So if I think about the models that influence us the most or provide inspiration for us, I think back to my days at, at GV, Google Ventures, and the operating partner model that GV brought to the table. Andreessen Horowitz does the same thing, providing more than just capital and a partner to lead diligence, make an investment, take a board seat, but also bringing these other um, skills to the table, You know, whether that be business development, so helping companies, helping some of the portfolio companies identify customers, or whether it's talent, so having staff on hand to be able to help companies recruit talent. So I think all of those things are what has guided our model. So when we think about how we add value at Plexo Capital, it goes beyond just kind of providing an LP commitment. We also look to do things such as have our portfolio manager, Vishal, help a general partner with their portfolio construction models and how they should think about both the modeling of what they're going to do with the capital, but also how to communicate that. We also have a person, Kate, who has done a great job for us in terms of helping us punch way above our weight class in social media and marketing. So Kate will sit down with our GPs and help them think about how to leverage social media to build their brand or even thinking about marketing and other PR efforts. And then finally, and probably most importantly, Kuji, who leads investor relations for Plexo Capital, really works hard with the, the GPs to work with them on a go-to-market strategy for fundraising. Because at the end of the day, let's be real, if there's no fundraise, then none of this other stuff matters, right? So this fundraising piece is often the most important component and can be the most challenging for a, a fund one or a fund two 
general partners. So Kuji will work with them to put together a robust go-to-market strategy that allows them to, the GP to understand how to communicate their value proposition. He'll help, Kuji will help put together a bespoke list of prospective LPs and then give some guidance on how to, to work with those um, prospective LPs in terms of getting the meeting scheduled, what should the cadence look like, how should the follow-ups be handled. And then finally, we have one of our advisors, George Ann Perkins, who spent 23 years selecting GPs for private equity and venture capital for the Stanford University Endowment. And George Ann works both with our Plexo Capital GP network, as well as with GPs from our new program, GPX. George Ann will do office hours with them to give them what it's like to actually present to an institutional investor. And she'll hear their pitch and then provide them with coaching. So I like to think that Plexo Capital does, we, our aspiration is to be the most value-add LP possible. I think that you talked about um, like the social media marketing and building your brand um, that, that is important to getting deal flow. Um, and, and for the sake of those frustrated founders out there who, there's, Michael Seidel was here at Afrotech, I want to say this was maybe 2018, and he said something that was striking for him to, if somebody in his seat to say, he said, um, there's this myth that you come to Silicon Valley and people just want to write you a check to help you make your dream happen, right? And what ultimately what he was saying was that it is not as easy as it sounds to come to Silicon Valley with an idea and people just start throwing money at you. And so, yes, I, I, for I, anyone. Yeah. And I, I want to get your take on this because there are a lot of people who see the marketing that comes from venture capitalists like, hey, we want to hear your thing. Hey, we want to, you know, invest in the best black startups. We all believe we have the best black startup. And then we run into these brick walls. And so can you add some perspective to the marketing of venture capital and specifically Silicon Valley and the for the frustrated entrepreneur who's running into no after no? Well, I, there's a there's a lot to unpack there. I think let's just start with Michael's observation. And, and I've heard him say this before. Look, it's hard to raise money as an entrepreneur or as as a GP, no matter what gender or ethnicity someone is, right? It's, it's hard, especially, you know, seed stage startup, first time entrepreneur, fund one for a GP, all of those things are hard. You know, you got 99 problems. And if, if you're black, you got 100. If you're a black female, you, you have 101. And, you know, that 100th and 101, those are really big relative to the other 99. But look, it's just to say that it's just hard in general. I think what ends up happening for a lot of the entrepreneurs what we've heard within the last 18 months, you know, in the aftermath of the unfortunate killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the countless others before and after, is a willingness and an openness to want to, for venture capitalists to want to be at least perceived as embracing new deal flow. And, and I think that, that's a good thing. There's a lot of sincerity um, by some, you know, I've talked to some and I believe they are sincere and we've actually seen some some you know companies founded by black entrepreneurs receive funding but look let's let's you know be honest that a lot of it is also just just talk as well and so you know i think what we need to do is we need to keep track of you know who are saying these things and, and hold them accountable we also need to move beyond this this notion of 
hey, you know, I'm happy to have office hours to mentor people. I mean, there's there's been more than enough mentoring. Like we're, we're we have oversupply on mentor and we're undersupply on the ability to actually have folks writing checks. That's that's really where the demand is. There's not really a whole lot of demand at this point for mentorship. There's there's demand for, you know, write a check for my for my startup. But, you know, we we have to, again, recognize that this is this is a journey. It's a hard process for entrepreneurs. And, you know, let's be honest, you know, a lot of companies are going to fail. But I think what's most important is people want to feel like they were given a shot that is a level playing field and they're given the same opportunity as a, a Mark Zuckerberg wannabe that also walks through the door. I think as long as we feel like it was a fair process, we actually had an opportunity. I think that that's the most important thing, because then it's on us to be able to to perform. I love that. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Um, speaking of, you know, the Ahmad Taylors, uh, I'm sorry, the Ahmad Arbery's, the Breonna Taylors, George Floyd's, there was an article you wrote about a year ago now. Um, you called, I'm a VC, but still a black man in America. And there was a line in it that I, th- I found particularly interesting. And you talked about, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because it makes more sense for me this way. It says, as a politician, it is now time to create legislation that will undo the damage of the past centuries to black to the black community or resign or be voted out. 
so those politicians that are capable can make the changes necessary. Um, how has legislation kept particularly would-be Black founders and VCs from having opportunities to build wealth, you know, generating enterprises? You know, it's, it, wow, that's, that's a great question because I think when we think historically about, you know, we can go all the way back and just look at legislation that prevented Black, you know, um, families from being able to own real estate. You know, the, the federal government actually worked with state and local governments to, to put processes in place. You know, redlining is the one that, that comes to mind. But, you know, it was more than just redlining. It was also the, the affordable loans that were done after the New Deal to be able to ensure that people could have a smaller down payment and a longer timeline, you know, 20 years to be able to make smaller payments to allow people to actually afford to buy homes. Um, the GI Bill, when, you know, folks returned from World War II, the ability for really with almost no down payment to allow GIs to be able to, to purchase homes. And when we look at, you know, how many Black folks were actually able to participate in those programs, you know, the numbers were, were very small. The government actually stepped in at the federal level for the programs put in place after the New Deal to actually, that's how redlining started. You know, they basically said, you know, if there were any black folks living in those districts, then the, you know, the area wasn't eligible for a loan. And what did that do? Well, it prompted legislation at the local level to be able to say, you know, through homeowners associations and through city, um, you can, you know, you can't sell to a black person, right? And so, those have had damaging effects that, uh, you know, for, that are going to haunt us for, you know, at least another, I think, another hundred years at, at a minimum. So, you know, that that's the damage that that legislation should have. You know, what's what's really interesting right now, and you know, I know that we're in a position where we're looking at both, and you know, an infrastructure package of at least one and a half trillion up to some of the other proposals to be able to provide um, education, um, childcare and universal health care that are up to three and a half trillion dollars. You know, I, one of the things that's being looked at is the, the carry as well. That is the, the profits that venture firms make and how that's treated on, on taxes. And, you know, I think it's kind of a little bit of, of, a, of a, and listen, I am one where I really believe that we should have, everyone should have health care. We need to address the situation with child care. I, I believe in all these things. You know, but it's just unfortunate that now it seems like, you know, right when the point where we're just starting to see some inroads made by black folks, now the tax folks come, you know, and so it's those are some of the things that are a little frustrating. I often think, you know, what are ways that we can kind of help? I mean, sure, we can talk about reparations, but what are some of the other ways that we could use legislation to be able to help with entrepreneurship? I would say both, you know, the private sector, obviously, there are things that can be done and have been done. But, you know, what can we do on the, the federal level as well to be able to to help, you know, black folks open more businesses, get the funding and start to generate wealth for ourselves? When you think about limited partnership, limited partners, I'm sorry, and like large institutional ones that could be pension funds, um, could be universities and the like, they're investing the capital of quite often like hourly workers, middle class workers. And you could janitors, teachers, et cetera. Yeah. Um, black many black of, and brown folks. Black and brown folks, right. And um at the same time, those dollars that 
often get invested don't go into black and brown companies. And so that money leaves the community in so many ways, um, because, as you know, I mean, you invest in 100 startups, hoping one makes it right. And so how important are mandates to where institutions say, look, we're going to invest in Plexo and Plexo is going to invest in a number of companies are we want to make sure that some of those are, you know, black and brown folks? How important are those mandates and what effect do you hope that they have so that, you know, some of those resources can you know, benefit the communities of the people who generated those dollars. That's, a, again, a lot to unpack and dig into, but this is an important topic. I think when we look at some of the, the pension funds in particular, you know, think CalPERS, CalSTRS, I mean, these are, you know, multi-billion dollar um, assets under management. And when one looks at the population that they serve, as you're, pointed out, the folks look a lot like us. They're black and brown folks. And but when we look at the at the the asset managers that are managing those funds, you know, they typically don't look like us. And, you know, we can also take this and apply it to to foundations. We can apply it to uh, endowments, right? College endowments. And at the end of the day, I think it's important for the markets themselves to recognize and understand the opportunity and realize there's going to be money left on the table by not being inclusive with both who's doing the investing and who's receiving those dollars from the investors. However, what I also know is that that's not going to work on its own, right? We, we've seen it and, we, and it moves too slow. So I believe that we do need to have some type of mandate. Now, that can manifest itself in many different ways. That can come from, you know, a top down from the federal approach or like we've seen uh, most recently California mandating that companies that are, are listed on one of the stock exchanges that are based in California need to have diversity on their boards. You know, they need to have black, brown, um, female. Um, so that's that's a good mandate. Right. That will have that will affect change. So we can see the benefit of having legislation from the top down. I would also say what's interesting, looking at the population of some of these um, entities that are managing money on behalf of someone else, we're talking CalPERS, CalSTRS, a lot of black and brown workers. Well, you know what? Change could be affected by organizing those folks to put pressure on the investment committee and board to say, hey, we want to see our dollars, because in essence, they are the dollars of those people going to managers that look like us that are investing into companies led by folks that look like us. So I think there's there's a couple of ways that, that it can happen. Um, but as much as I like just letting the market play out, uh, this is the case where it's just not going to happen or it's just not going to happen fast enough if we just leave it our hands off and allow the markets to just have it um, correct course. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but to be sensitive to your time, I'll do one more. Um, you know, there's much better of a flurry of activity happening now with black investors at the angel level, the seed level. Um, but when it comes to A rounds, even less B rounds and C, there's a lot less people who look like you and I. Right. And how do we get more institutional investors, more black VCs at later stage, later stages of the game? When one thinks about how to put together a strategy for a venture fund, 
the thing that immediately becomes apparent is that the strategy is often dictated by the fund size, you know, and to put it simpler, your fund size is your strategy. So what we've observed is that there are a number of talented investors at multi-stage firms or later stage firms. And what ends up happening is if those folks decide to leave that multi-stage or late stage firm and hang their own shingle, the constraint is often how much capital can be raised with that initial fund to the point where if one GP, even with multi-stage experience, can only raise you know, 30 to $50 million, well, then all of a sudden, that's an early stage firm, even though the GP may have late stage experience. So that's one of the challenges that we face is that often the folks that have the talent and the drive to go and take that leap of faith on their own and hang their shingle, they're limited in terms of how much capital they can raise. Now, over time, fund one, fund two, prove some success, they can raise more over time, then they can move to invest at some of those later stages. But I would say that's a very astute observation in terms of one of the constraints that we have downstream for black and brown entrepreneurs is that there's not enough capital at those later stages. Now, that said, I suspect that mentally it's more of a leap for investors that are not black and brown to actually invest at the earlier stages of entrepreneurs led by uh, of uh, firms led by black and brown entrepreneurs because there's not a lot of data, right? At least at the later stage, you tend to cross a point where there's enough data from what the company's performance is that it's, you know, that kind of barrier um, is lowered a bit. Not to say it is completely eliminated in terms of entrepreneurs that are black and brown being able to go to late stage capital that is not led by black and brown GPs. But nonetheless, at least there's some data, there's some performance that can be shown that allows the entrepreneur black or brown to be able to better compete in the market. Um, but that said, you know, I do believe that we need to see more large scale firms, multi-stage firms, later stage growth firms led by black and brown GPs to be able to, to better address that capital gap. Hello, Tony. Thank you so much for spending time with me, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. It was produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Marissa Lewis. Special thank you to Micah Davis, Adam Sims, and Sakara Savanyan. You know, like the wine? Yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. The video version of this episode will be on Black Tech Green Money on YouTube, so tap in. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Go get your money. Peace and love. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. 
That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. AT&T connects and ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.